Welcome. I'm Warren Odess Gillette, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Mary Perkins on April 26, 2022. Mary is an author, poet, and storyteller. She has focused on books in simple English on the history and teachings of the Baha'i Faith. Her first title, The Baha'i Faith, an Introduction, was co-authored with Philip Hainsworth, published by Ward Locke Educational in their series on living religion in 1980 and subsequently translated into Danish, German, Hungarian, Lithuanian, Russian, and Braille. Other titles include a trilogy on the lives of the central figures of the faith, called Hour of the Dawn, Day of Glory, and Servant of the Glory, that tell the stories of the history of the central figures of the Baha'i faith in easy-to-read English. This trilogy has been translated into both Chinese and Swahili. She created a picture book for children titled Percival the Piano, illustrated by Wendy Thomas, that's also available in Spanish. And she created a book on peacebuilding titled Growing into Peace, a manual for peacebuilders in the 1990s and beyond. Mary was born and raised in the west of Wales and holds a degree in history from the University of Wales. She has worked for eight years in Africa, in Lesotho, in Uganda, where she became a Baha'i, and in Cameroon, where she met and married Richard Gray, an American astronomer. In 2016, she created a volume of her poetry titled Turning Toward Home. We have a friend of Mary's read two of her poems near the end of the interview. Mary is currently working on a book on storytelling. I started the interview by asking Mary where she grew up and what was religious life like growing up. I grew up in West Wales on the edge of a small market town. I went to church with my mother most of the time and Sunday school. We were members of the Church of Wales, which is like the Episcopal Church in this country. And I benefited greatly from the beautiful prose of the prayer book and the King James Bible, which were very special for me. What was your spiritual journey that led you from being a Christian to becoming a Baha'i? What was that journey for you? I started going to the Quaker meetings when I worked in London, and then I was going to Quaker meetings when I was in Kampala, just because I found a it more meaningful for me. Also, I worked for two years in Lesotho, and I was taught there by the people about the unity of humankind. It's very much part of their culture. In most African countries, actually, this knowledge that we are one people, no matter what the color of our skin or our backgrounds. And I benefited so much from that that when I went back to Britain after the two years, I couldn't find anyone who related to this concept in the way that I did. And so I went back to Africa. 
I got a job in Uganda and I worked there for two years. And that's where I met the Baha'is. But I can remember when I first met them, I thought to myself, oh, these people are very nice, but don't they know that Jesus is the way and the truth <laughs> and the life? And maybe I better tell them. But what I found was that I had, they had a lot more to tell me. When did you become interested in the Quaker church? That would have been, when I worked in London, that would have been 19, early 60s, I think. No, wait a minute, mid-60s. Mm -hmm. I went on a visit to Birmingham and visited their Quaker meeting house also. And then in Kampala, there was a small group that met at the university. So that was what I was doing when I met the Baha'is. And how is it that you went to Africa? First of all, I went when I was 23. I had trained as a secretary. I knew I didn't want to go on at university to do a master's and I didn't want to teach. So my father said, oh, get a secretarial course. At least you'll never starve when you have that. Mm. So I did. And I worked as a secretary in London in a few temporary jobs. And then I went to Lesotho with something called International Voluntary Service on a two-year contract. And I worked there for a, a branch of the medical, Mountain Medical Service. It was called the Lesotho Flying Doctor Service. And it was the ultimate Girl Friday job. It was very interesting and exciting. I worked out of a hangar at the very small airport in Masero, which is the capital of Lesotho. So how is it that you even thought about doing something like that? I went to a school that had a very strong emphasis on service. And that was partly it. And I was just curious to see the rest, not the rest of the world by no means, but to see more of the world. And I was young in the 1960s, which was a generation when most of us wanted to go to Nepal or somewhere exciting like that. I remember when I got this posting to Lesotho, I was in our the flat I shared in London and I couldn't even remember where the country was. I think I'd been told it, but I didn't have an atlas. <laughs> so I was going to this place and wasn't quite sure where it was. What were your parents' thoughts about you going to Africa? They were fine about it. My parents were remarkable in that they would not have stood in my way. They wouldn't have stood in any of our ways. I had two brothers. And they gave us the freedom to choose what we wanted to do. Once you ran into the Baha'is, how long was it before you accepted the Baha'i faith as your spiritual oh, path? Oh, it was probably four or five months. This was when I was in Uganda, and I was living in a compound. It was a bit like an expatriate ghetto in <laughs> in Kampala, which at that time, 19... 71 was quite a dangerous city and we had guards and a 15-foot fence 
around this compound where we lived. And one Sunday morning, I was going up to the Quaker meeting and there was an older man walking on the ground. I knew I knew who he was. He was the father of one of my neighbors. His name was Professor Harland, and he was a very distinguished botanist now in his 80s. He was a bit like a white-haired hippie <laughs> in his style and dress and so on. And I slowed the car because I knew that he didn't have a car that week as his son and daughter had gone, daughter-in-law had gone on vacation. And I said, Professor Harlan, would you like to go to the Quaker meeting? And he said, no, I would like to go to the Baha'is. So I said, all right, jump in and I'll take you. We'll go together. I'd never been there before. And he actually became a Baha'i in, in Uganda. And then he left. He lived in St. Helena, I believe. And I became a Baha'i a few months later. So when he mentioned, I want to go see the Baha'is, had you even, even heard of the Baha'i faith at that point? Yes, I had, in that mm -hmm. I remember when I was at college seeing a poster, a large poster, that said, Baha'i World Faith. That's what it was called way back in the 1960s. And I was flying past on my way to some busy meeting or other, and I remember thinking to myself, who do those people think they are? <laughs> <laughs> or who on earth do those people think they are? So I, I was not very open to investigating it at that point. What was the cause of your reaction? <sighs> well, I think because I'd been raised in the church that, as I said before, Jesus was the way and the truth and mm. life, and that's what I'd been taught. But mm. I realized that the world was so much bigger and more varied. And in Uganda, I met for the first time communities of, of Muslims as well as Christians. I think it was about 7% Muslim when I was there, but Idi Amin, who was the president at that time, he was Muslim, so he was very keen to promote the Muslim faith. When did you discover the writer within you? That was earlier, really. I, I was always interested in writing and poetry. That's what I wanted to do. Goodness, from about the age of 12, I think. What was your first published work? The first published work was an introduction to the Baha'i faith. You had not published anything before you became a Baha'i then? No, I hadn't. So your first book then, that you were just referring to, The Baha'i Faith, which is an introduction to the, the Baha'i faith. Actually, I remember that little paperback book. That was very nice and a concise introduction to the Baha'i faith. So what inspired you to create this book? At the time, this would have been the mid-70s, and I had worked in Oxford for a publisher, for George Ronald Publisher, for about six months, and then they didn't have any money to continue paying me. So I left. I had found that I didn't really want to go on in, in publishing firm. Maybe in my life I found out what I wanted to do by finding the things 
I did not want to do. And I didn't have strong enough eyesight to do the amount of proofreading that was necessary to be a, an editor in a publishing firm. I'd also tried teaching and I, I did not enjoy that. So I then thought, well, maybe I can work as a writer. I was blessed with parents who, who at that point had quite a large house and they, they gave me the use of the top floor in their house. There was no one else up on that floor. So I didn't have to rush out and earn money just to pay rent at that time. So it was a good opportunity to start writing. And I had decided that I wanted to write something about the Baha'i faith, this message of unity and the removal of prejudice is the way I summed it up, I think, at that time. There was also a, a more urgent prompt in that the international governing body of the Baha'is, in 1977, they asked the British community to get out a book on the Baha'i faith to be published by a non-Baha'i publisher. So things came together and I worked with Philip Ainsworth to get that book ready. I'd been studying on my own how to do simple things like write a letter to a publisher asking for a book proposal was what it was. And so I knew how to do that. And I'd been up to the National Library of Wales, which is an extraordinary place where they have, I think every book that's been published in English is up there in the stacks. So I had looked at a few series for secondary school students. And I had made this decision that the Wardlock educational one was the most interesting and attractive format that I had come across. So when when the British Baha'is were given this challenge to do this, I wrote to Philip Hainsworth, who was the National Secretary at that time, and told him I'd done a bit of research and this seemed to me like a good a good start. I remember he cabled me. This was before cell phones and all the gadgets that we have nowadays. And somewhere in Wales, I think in my brother's house, there's a telegram from Philip saying, let's do this together. So we did. So who was the ultimate publisher? The publisher was a firm called Wardlock Educational. Ah, and they had okay. a good series called Living Religions. And when I'd been up at the National Library, I'd read, skimmed through several other faiths, Jewish faith, Hindu faith, Buddhist. It was a very simple plan. It was how the faith began, what are the teachings, and how do its followers live. It sold very well. Mm. And the reason it sold very well was that Baha'is all over the place realized it was there and bought it. And it sold much better than their other volumes on some of the older faiths. 
I think the publisher was rather astonished by this, but it's what happened. So it was reprinted six times in the first six years, I think. You were in Africa when you met the Baha'is, and I guess became a Baha'i. And then what was it that brought you back to the UK? I went to Africa three times before. It was 1976, the spring of 76, I had gone back to Lesotho to research for a book I was attempting to write on the history of that country. And my mother became critically ill, Mm. and I had to fly back urgently. Mm. She had bladder cancer. She lived for another two years, but she she died in January of 1978. Mm. And I was home at that time, helping my parents who needed help. Let's talk about another book that you wrote. In 1989, you wrote the book, Percival the Piano. So what is this book about, and what inspired you to write this book? It was a genuine piano that inspired me, actually. At that time, Richard and I were living in Toronto. We met a married in Cameroon and then went to Toronto so that he could get his PhD in astronomy. And we both served on the the local spiritual assembly, which is the basic unit of the Baha'i administration. And we had the use of a huge old building downtown for the rent of, I think it was $1 a year, something Mm -hmm. crazy like that, because it was owned by a developer who didn't know what to do with it. And it was vast. It was a theater and huge rooms. He said that we could use it. It was not the greatest thing because it took a lot of work from the community to keep it tidy and clean. He turned off the heat in the middle of a Toronto winter. Maybe he was going through hard times financially, but the pipes burst and it was just a big mess. And so we had to leave it. And when we left it, I remember one other Baha'i was on the assembly saying, what happened to my piano? He had lost a piano somehow Mm. in this vast building that just stayed with me. So I thought, well, what if? And that's how the book Percival came to be, because it's about a piano who's been forgotten in an office in a large city. In the little book, what happens is that the Baha'i community takes over the, that building as their center. And so he gets cleaned up and tuned up, and he is able to enjoy life more. It's really a book about how a spiritual assembly, the basic unit of Baha'i administration, how it works, and about Baha'i consultation, done in a way that a child probably 8, 9, 10, that sort of age would be able to enjoy. So let's go ahead and talk about another book that you wrote that you published in 1991 called Growing into Peace, a manual for peace builders in the 1990s and beyond. So what inspired you to write this book? I started writing this when we were 
We were living in Denmark. That was 1986 to 1988. And 1986 was the International Year of Peace, one of these United Nations years. And at that time, the governing body of the Baha'i Faith, the international governing body, released a statement on peace, which was called the Promise of World Peace. So my plan was to write something that would be some background and would make it a little easier for people to digest that pamphlet, which is fairly solid. It's a very important document. I thought it needed something simpler, so that's why I wrote it. One thing that interested me was that I showed it to two professors on the campus where Richard now works. One was in politics and the other was anthropology. They were friends of ours. And they both seized upon it and taught it. They said this is perfect for first-year students. Oh, wow. Nice. (laughs) So, So they taught from it, which was nice. It sounds like you've been all around. What brought you to Denmark? We did four years in Toronto for Richard to get his PhD. He'd been there earlier to get a master's degree. After seven years in Cameroon that he had spent there, I didn't spend so long there, he decided he needed to go back to school because he was teaching in a secondary school, but he had always really wanted to be an astronomer. So they took him back, which was wonderful. So we spent four years living in Toronto in a little basement apartment. We couldn't afford to live above ground. It was too expensive. But we had a very cozy, tiny basement. I remember in the bedroom, there wasn't actually room for a a bedstead. We just slept on a mattress on the floor. But Toronto is an incredible city. It had a wonderful public library where I was able to do some research. And... Then he was given two scholarships to do a postdoc study in Denmark. So that's why we went there. He was attached to the University of Copenhagen. By that time, I was into writing. So it was a wonderful career to have because I could just pack it up and take it with me. In fact, looking back, it's strange now because when we lived in that basement apartment, the only table we had was a tiny kitchen table with a leg in the middle, you know, the kind of wobbles. <laughs> it did wobble. And we spent $25 on a manual secondhand typewriter. And that's how I started writing my books there. Moving on, you had published two books in 1992 and 1999 on the lives of Baha'u'llah and Abdu'l-Baha, respectively. So this is a little bit different in that you wrote books about the central figures of the Baha'i faith. Maybe you could explain who Abdu'l-Baha and Baha'u'llah are and what inspired you to write these books. It was a follow-on from being in Cameroon because when we were in Cameroon, in the earlier 80s, 1978 to 82, they had their first 
what in this country would be called a summer school. There it was more like a rainy season school. <laughs> I remember the heavy tropical rain pouring down outside the windows. Richard and I were both asked to do some of the teaching, and I was given the job of teaching about the life of the Bab, who was the prophet herald of the Baha'i faith. He was a young man in Iran who said that a great world teacher would appear, and his teachings were so controversial that he was actually put to death in 1850. So I was asked to give lectures on his life for one hour every day of this five-day school. And at the end of it, I realized that I had quite a lot of notes and people seemed to have enjoyed it. And I was really thinking about getting books out for the Baha'is in Africa who needed books very badly. But unfortunately, my books are a bit expensive for many of them. But at least they were written, and three of them have been translated into two African languages, Swahili and Amharic, which is nice to know. There's a nice story that I heard from the man who translated them into Swahili. He wrote that there was this teenage girl, and her other friends wanted her to go and play with them. And she said, no, no, I have to finish this book. And it was my book about the life of the Bab. So mm-hmm. I found that quite satisfying. So who is Baha'u'llah and who is Abdu'l-Baha? Baha'u'llah is the prophet founder of the faith who announced his message in 1863. He was himself a follower of the Bab. And because of his following the Bab, he was thrown into prison because the clerical people in the Muslim faith at that time were bitterly opposed to what the Bab taught, which was that it was a new day for humankind and that this great teacher would come. Bahá'u'lláh was a nobleman and was thrown into prison and all his Goods and chattels were taken from him because he followed the Bab. But it was in this terrible prison in Tehran in 1852 that he received a revelation that he was the one whose coming the Bab had announced. He said, this is not from me, it's from the Creator who is almighty and all-knowing. But he was given the power to reveal amazing scriptures. And how about Abdu'l-Baha? Oh, Abdu'l-Baha was his oldest son. And before he passed away, Baha'u'llah appointed him as the center of the Baha'i covenant with his followers so that the Baha'is would have someone to turn to after his passing. He was also very much a, a perfect exemplar. And we are asked to study his life and to, as much as we can, do as he did. What do you hope the readers who read these two books about Baha'u'llah and Abdu'l-Baha, what do you hope the readers will take away when reading these books? I wanted to write them because I wanted to do a simple, direct narrative, and I was able to do that. We have quite a lot of very 
well, more academic books. And I wanted to write one that was simple so that once people had that story in their heads, they would be able to read the more difficult books. Earlier, you published a book called The Hour of the Dawn, which is about the life of the Bob. So who is the Bob and what inspired you to write about his life? The name the Bob is a title meaning the gate. So he announced that he was the gateway to a new age of peace and brotherhood, which we are very slowly moving toward. So he was a prophet herald. He foretold the coming of another much greater messenger. And what do you want the readers to come away with after reading about the life of the Bob? Well, I think once again, the basic storyline and to understand a little of the background of Iran at that time. It was not a place where a lot of people were educated. Majority of the people did not have much education, but there was very strong religious feeling. There was prejudice between the different groups of peoples. I've read a book about the Jewish followers in Iran at that time, and they were quite bitterly persecuted. And there was very little friendship between the different faiths, Islam, Christianity. Not that there was very much Christianity, but it was there. It's interesting about the time of the Bab. There was a, a messianic movement here in the States. There was a parallel messianic movement occurring in Iran, anticipating what they call the Twelfth Imam, which is their prophecy for the next messenger of God. And it's interesting that they coincided at the same time, these two movements. And the life of the Bob, if someone from the United States was to investigate the messianic movement in Iran, they would have discovered a figure that had a very Christ-like life, so similar to the life of Christ that they could obviously see the parallels of the the lives of these two messengers of God. I just find the life of the Bob just really quite a dramatic tale. For me, it was just as if I was reading the New Testament and the life of Christ. Yes, you're right. It is a, a very dramatic tale. The interesting thing also is my mother told me that in the Welsh countryside, this same messianic movement was taking place. She said that her mother had told her that, I think it was in 1863, the people had dressed in white and gone up on top of the hills to wait for the return of Jesus. And she said it was known as the year of great disappointment. Yeah, the same in the States, right. They called it the same thing. Now, you said you had a few interesting stories, and then you said you had a humorous one about getting onto the George Ronald list. Uh, yes. What was that, that about? Was, that was when I had purple hair. I, purple I, hair? I, yes. In my family, people go gray quite early. I have five first cousins. No, my two brothers and two first cousins and myself. 
we all started going gray when we were in our 30s, if not a little earlier. When I was living in Toronto, I remember my Baha'i friend said, you should try henna. Henna is good for the hair and it's not as harsh as the chemical dyes. So I did, but I think I didn't leave it on long enough. And I was flying to Britain to see my family and also to visit Mark Hoffman, who was running George Ronald at that time. And when I got to Britain, my five-year-old niece, she thought this was the funniest thing she'd ever seen. Auntie Mary has purple hair. Well, I did, because I didn't leave the hair on long enough, so it became purple. And then I had to go to London and meet with Mark Hoffman, whom I'd never met before. He invited me to meet him at his house, which I did. And I had purple hair, and I felt so embarrassed about it, but he didn't say a word, and I didn't say a word. <laughs> and I still got on their list with purple hair. You're a poet. When did you start writing poetry? Oh, wrote my first poem when I was 11. I can remember lying in bed, writing it in my head. It was very much in the style of Robert Louis Stevenson. My mother was a tremendous poetry enthusiast. In fact, both my parents were. They used to recite a great deal of poetry for us, the three of us. They were very good at it. It's a strong Welsh cultural practice, mm -hmm. recitation. Cindy is a dear friend whom I met in 1989 when we came to Boone. She is a professional potter, has a business called Little Guys, and sells her pottery all over this country. And she and I have worked together on a number of artistic programs, and I asked her if she would help me out by reading some of my poems. The first one is... It's called Voices. Thomas Hardy wrote a book about a family face. And for me, it's the voices of my uncles and aunts and parents that I remember so well. So, Cindy, would you like to read the first poem? Sure. Voices. Hardy wrote of the family face. It's the voices I recall. Griffith voices rich, mellow baritones, voices that have down the centuries run out across rickyards, reach to the roof timbers of country chapels, competed with the winds and waves on sloping decks of wooden sailing ships, voices that in welcome warm you to the ends of your toes, muted now down 50 years and across 3,000 miles I hear them as I heard them at 10 years old, hesitating in the drafty Tanilon passageway that smells of terriers and pipe tobacco. Hand on the parlor doorknob, the fluting tones of aunts and my mother behind me in the kitchen, the boys gone swiftly from tea table to cowshed and barns, and I, the only daughter of two families, listening to those deep, slow Sunday voices, rising and falling in lovely cadences, pondering the price of in-calf heifers at Carmarthen Mart, analyzing the merits of Lon Shonasley's new scrum half, 
musing on Wales' chances in the Triple Crown. Voices that sang and still sing to me, like the quiet chimes of well-tuned, beautiful bells. Thank you, Cindy. I forgot to mention that this, the Triple Crown is it's a contest between a number of different rugby football clubs, because rugby football is very much the, the Welsh game. England, Scotland, Ireland, Wales, and France, they battle together every year for this Triple Crown. Have you published any of your poems? I published one collection. Anyone who's listening who might like to look for it, it, it is on Amazon. It's called Turning Toward Home, and it is a slim volume. <laughs> what poem would you like to have read this time? Cindy, do you have the one about Lesotho from Kampala? Or Yes, I do. Because... Lesotho made such a big impression on me. I think the first country that you get to know in Africa stays with you. Lesotho from Kampala. Cloud shadows race on the bare hills. Grass scarcely grows. A keen wind blows tears to the eyes, cracks the skin, buffets the wool of a starved sheep stretching precariously for a leaf of willow, the only green leaf of a dry spring. But the air there is strong and sharp. It stirs in my memory, rich with the tang of crawled cattle, cow dung fires, and the sweet sickly smell of warm home-brewed beer, crisp with a touch of hoarfrost, and smoke-hazed blue over the evening village. Here in the lake country, I am far from the hills, and a moist wind blows through these memories, telling of lush foliage, of dewy daybreaks, and flower-fragrant dusk, of birdsong at noon, deep in the flowering tree. And I rejoice in this newfound green Eden, at this incredible abundance of blossoms, scent, and color, bird, beast, and flower. Yet, in all this waving greenness, I still see cloud shadows on the bare hills. Mary, do you have any writing projects in the works? Oh, yes, I do. I'm attempting to write a book on storytelling. In Toronto, I attended a couple of weekends at what is called the Toronto School of Storytellers, and it was something I loved, and I just fell into it and started telling stories. I think partly because of my background, my family told stories most of the time. That's what they did to entertain each other. I love it, but I want to get this book ready Really, I think I'm doing it for the same sort of market as Training Institute called the Ruhi Training Institute, which is being used in many Baha'i communities around the world. And I want to write it to that level. So it's going to be fairly simple, but I hope it'll get other people launched into telling stories. What's your target date for publishing? Uh, I'm hoping to get it finished by the end of this year, then I'll have to see 
if George Ronald or some other publisher would would accept it. Right. I recently wrote a book about a servant of Baha'u'llah called, my little book is called The Faithful Servant, because there was an African steward of the household of Baha'u'llah, and his name was Isfandiyar, and he has a very fascinating history and story. And I became interested, why on earth were there African servants in Iran? I didn't understand this at all. But then I read more about the Islamic slave trade, and I learned a great deal more. So what does that mean if Baha'u'llah had this African servant? Well, he, he was left them by his own father, who uh -huh. was a nobleman. But the interesting thing is that when he inherited this contingent of people, he gave them their freedom, and that would have been 1839, I think, when his father died. And he said, you can go free or you can choose to continue working in the household as paid servants. The rest of them decided to take their freedom, but Isfandiyar wanted to go on working in that household. So he stayed and he became the trusted steward of Baha'u'llah's household. We look forward to uh, seeing your new book about yes. storytelling coming out. And Mary, I want to thank you so much for taking this time to share your artistic work with us. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure, Oren. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Mary Perkins, poet, author, and storyteller. You can find this interview and other interviews on the website of BahaiPerspective.com and on the YouTube channel, A Baha'i Perspective. You can also find the podcast on Spotify and iTunes. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org, or you can call the number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Contrary to 
been ordained Sorry I'm not a fan these days And on this earthly plane Things contrary to your wishes Have been ordained World's holy and stay by, they made me beautiful boils.
Your actions day by day may be beautiful prayers. Turn towards God and seek always to do that which is right and noble. My heart. 
heart so the Lord can envelop it This is divine springtime and I choose to cherish it I sing like a canary so my melodies embellish it With friendliness and charity and love and then some fellowship I recognize Baha'u'llah and been to where they buried him I cried in a shrine where I prayed for my parents And I prayed for the world to break away from hate and arrogance Science is advanced but the soul is old carriages Lost in the music till I found a glimpse Of this spiritual map like a round of fists Now I hear the voice and I love the sound of it You see the promised one has come we're all surrounded by his countenance Searching through this earth for a truth that was concealed I found it in the words that Baha'u'llah revealed I've walked on so many different paths and been to so many different places I've learned so many different lessons but seen so many similar faces But it all fades to blackness when I fail to get the practice That I need to be the spiritual being you've seen in me Since back when I was walking all alone Talking like I built this home and it was the carpenter who made it all alone Praise God, I need to redefine my life, I'm living so raw Cause the flame of separation has consumed my heart I'll follow you, my Lord, I'm ready to do my part I'm ready to do your will, so here I am, my God For the flame of separation from thee, from thee Hath melted my heart within me For the flame of separation from thee, from thee Hath melted my heart within me Sweet neighbors come in all colors yeah. Red, orange, yellow and plum Our outsides may look different But it's a farmer's market we're from When a neighbor's at my bin She may have a different skin Even if she is packed in tin It's good to see her grin Sweet neighbors come in all shapes Oval and round Our outsides may look different But we come from planting the ground When a neighbor from a pie Needs some help to shoo a fly Even if he's a teeny guy It hurts to see him cry Sweet neighbors come in all sizes Large, tall, tiny and wide share joy and happiness everywhere even if he's a prickly pear it's great to see him care sweet neighbors come in all textures soft smooth bumpy and rough our outsides may look different but we all are lovable stuff yes we all are lovable stuff yes we all 